Welcome. You're listening to The Bump Podcast, a place for believers of the unexplained, monsters, and paranormal. I'm your host, Bo Kennedy. Join us as we go face-to-face with what goes bump in the night. Hey there, believers. I got a great show for you today. Um, one, I'm sharing this episode on my birthday. I'm officially 40 years old now. I've kind of held off on this episode for a week or so since I recorded it, just so I could share it today. <laughs> I'm really excited about this episode. Um, as you guys know, several episodes ago, I interviewed Tom Warner from Unsolved Mysteries. Um well, I couldn't get enough of that whole whole story, so I reached out to a couple more people on that show, and I was blessed enough to get a reply back um, from from Tom Reed. Um, he's actually the only other person I reached out to on that show, but Tom um, took it to the next level. He got a hold of Melanie Kurtzdorfer, who also agreed to come on with him, and I got them both here on the show. Um I'm like I said I'm I'm very excited about it. They have a lot to discuss. This is actually Melanie's first time being on any kind of radio show or doing any kind of interview outside of that Netflix series. Um the events that have happened to her throughout her life have been pretty traumatic and she's taking steps towards healing and I'm just I'm very proud and very um very happy for her that she's taking the steps to come forward and talk about this, to get things off of her chest. She says it makes it easier for her to, you know, to, uh, to cope, you know, to heal. So I'm, I'm glad to be there for that. Um, Tom Reed is very outspoken. He has a lot of knowledge. He has a lot of things to say. Um, he has a website that I would love for you guys to go check out. It's BerkshiresUFO.com. Check him out. They have tons of information on there. Um, there are a lot of things that the Netflix series seem to have left out. Now, I know they were focused on Labor Day 1969, but, man, did they miss an opportunity. There there were so many things that led up to that event, so many things that went on during that time, uh, tons of stuff that have happened since then. Um, there there are whole interviews of people that they, they had for the show that they cut out. So we talk about that. Um, we talk about a lifetime of experiences for Melanie. Um, and I know as listeners, 
we're, you know, we're excited, we're entertained. But for Tom and for Melanie, um, for both Toms, these were very traumatic events. Um, entire families were being abducted at the same time, um, miles apart from each other, straight out of their vehicle, some of them. Uh, it, it's wild. Um, definitely unexplained as to why. So we try to break down into that a little bit. We, uh, we talk about maybe what makes some people more likely to have this experience than others. Why were they in that area? Um, we just really try to delve into the whole phenomena of abductions. Um, so I just, I hope you're as excited to hear this as I am to share it. Thank you guys for listening and please share this. Get these stories out there. Um, I'm looking to do more interviews. I have several banked up, but you know, my interviews are running lower. So the more people I can get on the show, the longer I can last. So let's help each other out here. Okay. So share away, listen, and, uh, just thanks for sharing on this birthday with me. This, this is, this is a lot of fun. This is an awesome day. So here we go. Thanks for having me. Um, we've got Melanie on the line with me today. This will be her first, uh, radio show. I think most people know her from, uh, Unsolved Mysteries, um, Virtues UFO. And, um, I've been talking with Melanie on and off, um, I guess for the last couple of weeks, uh, maybe even longer than that, three weeks now. And, um, there's a lot of similarities and a, a lot of, uh, uh, interesting aspects, things that we shared. And even though I didn't really know her growing up, um, comes out, uh, come to find out we lived like a, a mile and a half from each other. And there were a lot of things that we saw and experienced and had the same feelings about. And so I think I'd like to kind of focus on some of that today. Um, you know, there were, uh, you know, when, I think we both agree that water has something to do with what was seen in the Berkshires. The Housatonic River is extremely polluted. Um, what she encountered or what her family saw that night, a car at Lake Mansfield was over water as well. And so there are some ties uh, to water in that area, we believe, as well as um, a lot of other sightings that I don't talk about. I pretty much focused on 1969 because that's what uh, made U.S. history went before the United Nations and all that, and that's really what everybody is aware of. So I kind of focus on that aspect of it. But there were a lot of there was a lot of activity, a lot more seen in that area, and um, Melanie and I experienced some of the same things. And um, with that, maybe um, maybe Melanie, you want to jump in here? Sure. And maybe, uh, okay. And thank you for having me, both of you. Um, it's very ironic, actually, talking to Tom. We both worked at the Mahawi Theater, and I did not even know it at the time either. Uh, we found that out chatting, uh, which I found ironic as well. And uh, we both had UFO sightings over East Mountain also. I was surprised to find that out. Um, it was not a one-time thing for either one of us. We had been seeing this many times in our lives growing up in Great Barrington, always over the Lake Mansfield and the Housatonic River, which I just find this amazing. I don't know why the Housatonic River. I don't know why Lake Mansfield. And over East Mountain, we also know that there's a reservoir up there as well. So what this connection is with water, I find fascinating. 
uh, the night that we had this incident take place, both of us were gone for a good amount of time as well. Neither of us, um, I cannot remember, uh, I, I keep trying to remember what happened during that time. I have bits and pieces come back to me. Um, I, I remember the, the evening. I remember what happened before it. I remember the incident that took place. Uh, I remember the, what it looked like very much so. Um, I remember the colors exactly like Tom, the, the bright reds and the orange, that bronze look. It, it's just fascinating how much we remember the same things and that we were both gone for a good length of time. Do you want to add to that anything, Tom? Yeah, um, I've mentioned um, for a long time uh, something else that Melanie and I actually um, had in common, too, was if you go back and listen to any other um, interviews I've done or, or some of the talks I've done, um, when we finally came back to the vehicle, however that happened, um, and my grandmother was now in the driver's seat when, in fact, my mother had been driving the car prior to this sighting and feeling like we were underwater and this tapping sound, um, my grandmother was the only one, at, or the first one, to gain consciousness, for lack of a better word. And nobody else in the car was responding. You know, I was out. My brother's head was on my uh, right leg. My mother was unconscious or out, or however you want to word that, in the passenger seat. When, in fact, once again, she had been driving what she thought was just moments earlier. And um, nobody would respond to my grandmother. And so she panicked and drove back to... Uh, the town of Sheffield for help and had gone into a silk store, that kind of thing, which is um, pretty common knowledge. And um, Melanie um, had pretty much the same thing happen. There was a flash or burst of light. And, um, right, I mean, you were the, nobody was responding to you, correct? I mean, this is, this is a, so many parallels, so many similarities. And, and, um, and, and there's just, they just pile up. I mean, there's a, uh, you know, this orange ball that we also saw in White Barrington, which I don't talk about much because it gets kind of um, busy and there's a lot of moving parts to this thing, and I try to keep it a little bit more uh, focused so the, the truth doesn't get lost and all the all the different little things that happened. But this was a very active community. We had seen things in 66, 67, 69, 74. Um, there were these crop circles that showed up in Sheffield, which is written about online. You can Sheffield Crop Circles 2013, 2014 all kinds of witnesses that have given testimony to the historical society. And, and, and with that, again, like Melanie said, this wasn't like a one or one time thing that was big. I mean, people saw things all the time. There was one day I was actually coming home from school. I was in um, Searle's school and we were going up near a park where we used to sled in the wintertime. And this was summer though. And um, all the kids kind of hung out there, you know, a lot of, a lot of the school kids hung out there and we saw this orange, ball of light, very similar to what I saw in 1969, which was off to the right side of our car, which was the one that was hovering over water, which was in the, about 100 yards away over a turn in the Hussaconic River. And this thing was probably three or four times the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, and it was coming right at this group of kids at this light park. And it, did a, it took a 90-degree turn, maintained the same distance off the, um, off the property, which was a, a park of sorts, 
And then when it came to the bottom where the road was, it rose up, went over these homes, and dove into this area of land. Um, and Melanie knows what this is. And um, and everyone was sitting there staring at, at this light, you know, which went dull over this house. And the kids left the park running down the sidewalk to the end of the street, which is not far from Dewey School, and nobody could find anything. And so this is the kind of thing that was happening in this area. And as Melanie will tell you, there's, uh, there's water up there, correct? Yes, that's all oh. where the reservoir is up there. So, again, this was not far from water. And so it seems like everywhere that there's a mass sighting of sorts in the area, it's around water. Which I find fascinating that there's always water involved. And the Housatonic River is is always where I've had incidents happen and um, also Lake Mansfield. I, I'm scared to death of Lake Mansfield. I won't even go near Lake Mansfield because of it. Yeah. Well, I find that yeah. fasc- I find it fascinating too that it was by water, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with the term the USOs, uh, the submersible objects. Mm-hmm. Has, mm-hmm. has there been any reports of seeing these things, these craft, come out of Lake Mansfield or anything? No, but ironically, both I didn't know this uh, at the time because I'm just getting to know Tom now, and we're finding out that we knew a lot of the same people. I'm older than Tom, and so the people that I know that he knows are younger than me. They're closer to my brother's age, uh, but we come to find out we both knew people that uh, died up at Lake Mansfield in different ways. One of the people that died, it was a freak thing. He went out on an inner tube and just vanished and they finally found him, but he was in one of those huge inner tubes. I believe it was a a truck, big truck in inner tube i don't know how he would have drowned in one of those great big inner tubes the inner tube was still floating there but he was gone there was lifeguards there and everything it took him a long time to find him he just it was a such a freak thing and then i found out that uh tom had a friend that passed away up there too it's a creepy place the whole area kind of has some um an eerie undertow to it if uh more so the the road down under Sheffield Bridge. But, yeah, there is kind of an undertow, I guess maybe because of the memories and the activity and, and um, you know, what people um, remember or their families remember or what they had seen as children. Again, it's a, an active area. And to answer your question about has anyone seen anything come out of the, the water, um, when we went through that bridge in Sheffield um, down uh, Old Cover Bridge Lane, uh, there was a, um, uh, an ice sphere. It was... Uh, uh, almost like uh, if you had a cue ball from a pool table and it gave off a little bit of a light, it was that solid, you know. And it was rising up from the banks of Housatonic River when we saw it, but it was already off the water. And I've never actually said it came out of the water because I really don't know where it came from. We saw it over water. And it actually had these rods of light, very focused rods of light, that fired from each side of it, not the bottom of it, but the, the sides of it. And and ancient aliens did a did a pretty good take on it, except that the difference was that ancient aliens showed that it moved forward, 
where rods of light spilled down, so it kind of looked like an ice cream cone, I guess. But they either went back up in it or just dissolved on their own, and this sphere um, moved in the same direction as our car um, going down this this old single-lane dirt road, which used to be like a horse and buggy type of a road. It was a shortcut that my mother had taken that night. And, um, and with that, we saw a second one over water, which was orange, very much like what was seen and probably 74 or 75 um, near Dewey School in Great Barrington. Very similar to it. It could have been the same thing. It looked very similar. And then as we went down this road a little bit further is when we felt like we were underwater. Everything felt, um, there was a pressure change, almost like being in a pool, deep in the pool. And uh, my mother words it as being kind of tight, you know, tight around you, the pressure on your chest, you could feel it. And, um, and that's when we saw what, we believe Melanie saw it was um, it looked somewhat like a turtle shell and that's the way I described it as a child it was very um, the out, outer skin of it if you will um, had this bronze and goldish and pewter look off to the right of it um, from the angle we were seeing it the left side was more it was darker for some reason and um, the middle of it was very fat I mentioned it looking like a, a big tire or a snake skin around the middle it was the larger um, part of it, and then the top and the bottom were kind of smaller, so it had a very fat section around the middle of it, but it was huge. I think it was probably somewhere around 100 yards or so. Now, I go, I say to myself, well, I was nine years old, so almost 10, but, um, you know, you see things a little bit, things seem bigger to you when it's a child, maybe. Um, but I've gone back, and I've looked at the area, and uh, Jan Green, um, you know, she remembers it being that big, too. And if you look at the people... It was big. It was huge. And, and that craft where if you were to go now where it was, is kind of a dried up uh, area, uh, kind of a cornfield over there now. But at the time, there was water underneath that particular disc too. And so what we, or object, what we feel when we saw this thing, it had lines in it too. It had different patterns to it, or at least it looked that way. We were in the middle of three moving parts or hovering parts. And I say to myself, well, you know, was there communication between these three objects? Were we picking up some type of a, uh, electromagnetic anomaly or field or something that made us feel the way that we did? So we've always asked ourselves, you know, what, you know, what, um, you know, what, why did we feel the way we did? Why did the, everything seem muted with the, uh, you know, heightened tapping sound of the stones? And why, why did we get into this funk you know what was it that caused this and um my feeling is and actually even after talking to melanie a little bit um, i think there was a an interest in water i think this um, craft had sent out some type of a you know um testing type of thing for the water it was either extracting some water testing water um, uh, there was an interest in water all three pieces again were over water and and to um take that a step further my father and i don't know if your listeners know this but my father was actually an attorney and an office he uh had taken me to um you know the governor's mansion at one point where i'd stay in the kitchen and have coffee when he talked to the governor but he was friends with uh, senator christopher dodd and and um and this was now in the late 80s when there was a lot of interest on the hudson river valley sightings which again was over the hudson river right it was over water and so there's a connection to the hudson river sightings as well and so um, 
this attorney, uh, Butchman, who lived um, in Manchester, Connecticut, not far from my condo, um, had reached out to my dad to say, I am meeting with Mohammed Ramadan, the president of the Parapsychology Society of the United Nations, and I'm going to be speaking on behalf of the activity um, in and around the Hudson River area. And wanted to mention these sightings in Great Barrington once again. Now, this is back in 87 when there was a focus on the Great Barrington Sheffield or Berkshire's UFO sightings over water. And that's why it went in support of or mentioned in support of the Hudson River Valley case in 1992 on October 2nd at the United Nations because of its um, sighting over water. And, um, and uh, as most people know, my father lost his life also on that same date, October 2nd, which was one of the things that, you know, had fueled this case way back in the day and how, you know, I got in Good Morning Canada and that kind of thing. But um, so there always has been an interest or I should say um, uh, a connection to this sighting and water. And it goes back to 1987. So. Well, well, no, we have warrants too, Tom, that uh, I don't know if I've mentioned to you the sightings that are on Cherry Hill and Stockbridge. Those sightings are also over water. The pond that's before Monument Mountain Regional High School, that's a hot spot. That is full of UFO sightings right there where that pond is. In fact, I have a friend that has some photographs that I can get a hold of to show you of some UFOs. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, if you go to yep, if you go to uh, Ber- BerkshiresUFO.com, there's actually a photo taken by a farmer in Sheffield of this round um, sphere. And Melanie, I don't know if you've seen it, but they actually took an actual picture of it over the cornfield. Um, that was taken, I think, in 2014. So it's an active area. For a while. Yeah, it sounds like this place has been active for over 50 years now. And, well, I'm finding it fascinating by this, the water connection. But also, I don't remember. I've I've watched your episode on Unsolved Mysteries probably three times now. And I don't recall them mentioning anything about this connection with water. Uh, Is there a lot that they edited out? Of There's quite a bit. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. yeah, they left out so much. Uh, they didn't mention that this was actually the first UFO case. Melanie and I are involved in the very first UFO case to be officially inducted into the United States as historically true. It was inducted by historians. It was inducted by the governor of Massachusetts, lieutenant governor, and the. Um, the, in, the induction or the legal letters or the state letters were also sealed by a circuit court judge in that 30th district court. It's, it's making those induction letters a memorandum of law. It is the first and only UFO case to be deemed historically true. And it sits in three museums right now with a huge display that's being uh, redone as we speak at the Roswell um, Museum in New Mexico, who is also a sponsor of the UFO Monument Park in Sheffield, Massachusetts. You know that that's a that's that's the kind of thing that people need to know. Um, that that takes away the skepticism. You know, it, this is this is factual. This is documented. Uh, it's been acknowledged by government. Uh-huh. So, 
what is there's nothing to debunk. You know what I mean? Oh no, there's there's hundreds of witnesses, but only a few, you know, have come out really. And I think that's pretty much I think what that's what we contributed. I mean, we've I've been talking about this our whole lives, and and I think as uh, you know with Elon, Elon Musk and you know everything going on with uh, you know the topic today and the Pentagon releasing the terms off world, which is actually how our letters, our state letters were were worded back in 2015 when they inducted it. Um, you know, more and more people are starting to uh, come out now and say, look, you know, we can, it's a different time. You know, these are uh, different days and, and um, there's more support, you know, um, the hardest part for us and, and uh, Melanie can jump in here, obviously. Um, she'd like to share a thought or two, but for us, um, and even in the episode, you said you saw it, you know, three times, you know, I'm being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Whereas my mother, might say, well, maybe we're at the right place at the right time, you know. Um, I love that. Yeah, it's all on how you look she at really it. She really was, know? because your mom, you were lucky that you had such a great mom that she was so mm-hmm. supportive like that, because she made sense, too, when she said nobody got hurt, nobody hurt us. And it's true. I mean, we all survived it. It made us stronger people because of it. You had a good support system, and I think you were really blessed to have had that. I think it's wonderful that you had. Yeah, that. with the immediate family, but not in our diner. I mean, um, people. That's, were, this is true. This is true because you yeah. couldn't tell anyone. You could not talk about it. It was something you couldn't talk about because people would think you're crazy. But now that this episode has aired, and you can talk about it. I'm getting phone calls from other people that I grew up with that experienced the same thing that were in the neighborhood. And it's, they're saying, but don't use my name. Don't tell anyone. They're still afraid to talk about it. Which is why I built the park. Um, you know, I don't know if you know about the park, the UFO Monument Park, but, I mean, we have uh, sponsors like, you know, Travis Walton and Ben Hansen and Mike Barra and h and Aliens donated the new entrance sign. So now we've got like this, uh, I, I call it a judgment tree park, which sits off <laughs> again on the water right near the bridge. But, I mean, this is what, you know, I try to do. You know, this is, you know, I was the first one to jump in, you know, or the first one to get up and dance, as I've said. And now other people are going to be able to, to talk about it openly and, and um, hopefully get in some of these programs now and talk about what happened to them, what they remember seeing. Because you can't only hold some, something inside for so long, you know. And like Melanie said, it really was some of the people were actually, um, I guess I'm going to assume, harder on us than the incident itself. Like when we had the diner, of course we talked about it. My mother talked about it. She was a single mom, and and it was only one of the few eateries in town. And um, so you had a lot of people coming into her diner, and, and, you know, there were broadcasts on WSBS radio. I don't know if Melanie remembers it, but, you know, they had, you know, broadcasted on the radio. And occasionally people in the diner would hear, oh, you know, you hear a comment like, oh, what a bunch of crap or what a bunch of lunatics or that kind of thing. And, of course, my mom would say, well, we saw too. We were right near the bridge or what have you. Then, of course, you know, you had different uh, strong differences in opinion about it. You know, you had that dynamic again where, you know, after work, you know, a couple of beers, push and shove in the diner, and it got hard, you know. And there were times when I was um, maybe 10 years old, and uh, these guys would come in the diner smell like horse manure, you know, and, um, you know, just to kind of be a jerk and block the door. And my mother would go out there to say, come on, guys, you know, and then there would be this this picking on her, and I couldn't do a thing about it. I'd sit there and have to watch this happen to my my mother, my single mother. 
And and so people could be mean, you know. Um, we had a tight family, but the people around us were kind of hard on us. Um, and I think Melanie experienced some of that too, you know. Um, so after a while, you're just like, hey, there's no point in talking about it anymore because it's just people aren't ready. You know, they're too um, – it doesn't fit in their little, you know, little wheelhouse, you know. So um, leave it alone. And so we moved. You know, we ended up moving. I had another friend that moved because of it too. Um, ironically, actually two friends that moved because of it. It's interesting because we didn't know it at the time that other people were experiencing it, and now I'm finding right. it, and that's why they moved, which I find amazing. But here, I stayed here and endured it. My family's all gone now. They're, they all moved. But I lived through it, and it did make me a stronger person. I'm a survivor. Let's put it that way. And I'm glad that I did. And I do thank you, Tom, for making me open up more about it. I, I, I'm grateful for it. Let me no, put it not at all. I mean, call me anytime. And see, that's, you know, that's something, stuff, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, it's okay. Um, that's something that I want to make sure people understand. You know, of course, people are going to listen to this for entertainment. But this this wasn't something fun for you guys. You know, this this was a traumatic experience, obviously. And, Melanie, I spoke with you last night. And you, know, you said that, you know, you, you wanted me to prompt you with questions about things. and uh, Definitely. Uh, if it's okay with you, you know, I'd like for you to let people know that this wasn't a singular incident for you, was it? It was that uh, you had visitations As throughout a child, your child, it started when I was four years old. I was living on Russell Street in Great Barrington, and it started when I was four. That's when I can remember it's starting, and my sister remembers also because she, she. I used to get into her bed because I was so frightened. I would wake her up during when it was all happening, and she also saw these little gray men would come into my room and take me. And I was telling Tom how I would be levitated out of the room down the Housatonic River because I can remember it's like an astral dream, this levitation that happens down the river. I can remember, and I still have this dream to this day going right behind Melvin's pharmacy. Do you remember Melvin's pharmacy, Tom? Yeah, I do. And I can still see myself going down behind the river, right down behind the river, levitating right behind that river being taken down there and I would tell my parents my mother actually found me sleepwalking one night and I would tell them and they wouldn't believe me my sister would tell them she's not lying she's not lying listen to her but I was punished and I was actually locked in the basement one night because they just said I was crazy and to stop it to knock it off but you know my brother would tell my parents and they would say that my brother had imaginary friends that's what my what was happening with my brother. They would listen to him, but he had imaginary friends. I was just crazy. But it was but happening. But he was in the car with you, right? He was in the car with you that night at Lake Mansfield. Wasn't he was much? in the car with us that night, and he, you know, everybody was screaming when we saw the UFO. I knew what they were coming for. I knew they were coming for me, and that's why I was screaming. And my father started chasing it, and. 
I, I just, you know, we were screaming and my father, he thought it was so cool because it was really the first time that he ever saw anything, my father. So he started chasing it and they don't remember to this day, my sister's been through it over and over again. Every time she calls me on the phone, she goes, mom and I, we keep trying to figure out how we got home and we don't remember how we got home. She said, I remember you coming in early in the morning and saying that you woke up at Mansfield, but we don't remember how we got home. And I remember the door was unlocked, and my mother, she always locks the doors. She still does to this day. She's so afraid of not locking her doors that night, and the back door was unlocked, which was so weird. But they cannot figure out how they got home that night. My memory, the last thing I remember is my father chasing that. I, I remember being there, eating the ice cream. We did not want to go, my sister and I, because we worked all weekend at the theater. And we did not want to go with my parents. That was the last thing we wanted to do was go for ice cream. We wanted to go hang out. Being, I was a preteen. My sister was a teenager. And then, of course, we were forced to go and do this. And then we were having ice cream. We looked up. My father said, holy shit, and excuse my language. And there was this bright orange, red craft that just came up over. Remember the Jesuits were there up at the lake where the Jesuits were, Tom? That I don't remember. Over the mountain, where the mountain is. They were up on the mountain. It came up over and then it was like right there it all happened so quickly and my father looked mm-hmm. up saw it and then the next thing i know i just started oh there's, there's, a ha- there's a house up there there's a house on the hill there right well now there's houses up there but at the yep. time it was like where the jesuits were and it was there over the water hovering over the water and then it started moving and my father started chasing it down that dirt road and we were all screaming, stop it, stop it, don't do it. And my mother was going, no, Joey, don't, don't. And I knew that they were going to take me. I just knew it. And then the next thing I can remember is being levitated. Do you know where the Berkshire Heights Road is going up towards Simon's Rock? Yes, I do. All right, where the Simon's Rock is and where that cutoff is to go to Fairview Hospital and Simon's Rock? Mm-hmm. Right there. That's what I remember le- next is being levitated there, and then where the being on the craft was my next memory. And all I remember is like a metallic being on a ta- like a table, and then a metallic all around me. It's like a not metal really, but almost like a glass. You couldn't see through it. But it's like a, a metallic look, like a thin metallic glass, almost like. Does that make any sense to you, what I'm trying to say? Yes, it does. It almost was... institutional looking. Yeah, I've said, too, that um, what uh, we remembered, um, I guess, uh, after that flash in the, in the the eruption of crickets and cadence, which came back, like everything kind of came back to life, if you will, or kind of like a, someone had for a moment there turned the switch off on life itself and turned it back on. It was like that dramatic. And um, our memories are, are something that um, 
would resemble like a, a large airplane hangar and these tubes of light that were uh, like single fluorescent tubes that where the wall and the ceiling met. Um, there was like a tube of space, a tube of space. And, you know, looking back or trying to rationalize or make sense of what I saw, it reminded me an awful lot of a single fluorescent tube, you know, that you'd have in a commercial building. But only one, though, you know, no covering over just a tube itself. And there were uh, steel carts um, in this uh, large open area where I was, which reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, what we had our projectors on in school, that kind of thing. And um, and with that, too, there was a, a cart that I was on. I slipped off, fell to my feet kind of, or jumped onto the, the floor or ground of this thing. And um, I could see uh, enough. I could see a little bit. It was fairly dark. And I was grabbed by my left arm. I talked about this actually on the behavior panel too, and um, brought out a, a doorway. I say a doorway. I don't remember the door itself, but I remember a doorway. And taken out a hall and into a room which had this huge bowed-in uh, glass wall. And looking back, and I tried to reflect. It was a long time ago, but I, the best way to depict or to describe or, or to relate what I saw was. If you saw that glass block, you know, those individual glass blocks and a wall that would be made up of something like those glass blocks, but which bowed inward, almost like a coffee can, you know, how a coffee can is rounded like that, and just, you know, bowed in towards me. And I remember that. And um, and it gave off, like, if you look through it or try to see through it, it was almost like a one of those shower curtains where you could kind of see figures behind it, but you couldn't make it out clearly. And there was an apparatus that lowered from the ceiling. And it looked, again, it looked almost like maybe like an MRI center or something like that. It had a, a feel to it like that. And I had ran. I ran out the a corner of this room and into a hallway, which was huge. It was like being in, a, in an empty Walmart. So wherever I was at the time, and I was gone the same time, I was out of the car the same time Melanie was. And that's something that's really interesting because she ran into it at 8 o'clock, about 8, and it was getting dusk. And we were only a few miles away from her, but we were locking up our restaurant. So it was about 8.30, quarter or 9 when we encountered these three moving objects. And so we were actually um, out of the vehicle the same time she was out of her car. And we were – the other thing, too, that's interesting is we were both in cars. You know, that's, we're the only ones – we were in cars that night a mile and a half from each other. And encountered this thing within a 40-minute period of each other, and we were both out of our cars at the same time. And that's friggin' wild. And and so with that, again, I where we where we were as a family or what we remember was much bigger than the craft that we saw. So I still to this day believe that we were taken somewhere else. I don't. I've never said that I was actually. I know for sure I was on that craft in 1969 and why I'm very palatable and how I describe this because I don't know where we were, but where we were was definitely bigger than the craft. So I, I look back at, you know, all the military manufacturing facilities there, you know, command aerospace, Pratt Whitney, uh, Sikorsky, GE, you know, the missile sites, the NORAD towers up in Pittsfield area. So I don't, there was a lot of military there, too. There was a lot of government in the area. And they mined the magnesium for the atom bomb in Canaan, which went to Oak Ridge back in the day. So I, I'm, I try to put this together and go, why the activity? There's a lot of military manufacturing facilities at the high altitude. You know, Beckett Mountain is huge. Um, I think 
Sheffield, like 2,000 feet above sea level, give or take. And so you have a high, you know, a high elevation. You're only an hour and a half from New York City. Um, you've got all these military manufacturing facilities around. You've got some of the most toxic water in the United States in the Housatonic River. Um, you know, there's, there has got to be a reason for this activity. And, um, and to this day, I think that's the, the driving question for me is, you know, what were we part of? You know, because to I me, agree. I wasn't right. Yeah, exactly. Right, Mel? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I always link it back to the General Electric as well. Yeah, General Electric, exactly. And I think that they, and here's another thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they just give the uh, the townships millions of dollars not to sue them for polluting the water back in the day or something? I don't they're know still the fighting part. about cleaning up the PCBs and doing all sorts of, There's there's always an ongoing fight with the General Electric and cleaning you, up the Titanic River. Now, the corn in that area near the bridge grows 15 feet high. You've got corn on the hot cob two and a half feet long. It's on my website. You can see it. Um, you know, and, and so you look at this, too. You look at this polluted water. You had dogs. You had animals. You had some people eating the fish out of that water. You know, I look, okay, let me, the reason I'm going in this direction is that the earth rotates, right, on this unique axis that allows for a wide range of life to thrive at the same time, right? You've got brackish water, fresh water, salt water, desert, right, rainforest. And after seven extinctions, this planet has over 8 million species living on it, thriving on it. They're coming from somewhere. So my feeling is, and this is just my gut feeling, and why I feel this way, I don't know, but that Earth is our galaxy's arc, in essence. There's, how do you have 8 million species living here that, you know, after seven extinctions, and they're all in the right areas? You know, you've got everything is where it needs to be to thrive, and the dinosaurs are gone, which would have been a mess for us. And, and, and so none of this really makes sense. And you've got the explosion of technology. You know, there is an intervention. There has to be. And so to have, eight, to have 8 million species means you had to have at least 16 million, one of each opposite sex. And chances are it had to be more than that because they would have all been inbred. So it means we would have had to have, what, 32 million species here? Where, where did they come from? And so if you don't have clean water... Everything dies. I agree. Yeah. Well, you know, I've I've never even considered that whole aspect. <laughs> you you just blew my mind, Tom. Uh, I never, yeah. I never, I never even considered, you know, that after the extinction level event, that how the the Earth is still populated with everything in their region, and everything's just like clockwork, you know. And this ecosystem is just working. And yeah. so maybe what we saw, maybe there was um, – uh, and look at it this way too. You know, all these animals and species have unique properties. You know, you, a dog can hear amazing, right? It means you could extract – so let's say, you know, maybe Earth in some way is a lab. You need – you want a human with Rh negative blood or O negative blood, which our nine members of our family are Rh negative, which is also different. My body temperature runs at 97.1. Not ninety, not ninety-eight point, you know, well, but like a point below or a point and a half below normal. Our whole family's like that. Um, 
and so uh, you know you have all these unique properties that you could you know extract. You know we're making ligers, that kind of thing. You know, you know, uh, you know uh, what is it? The spider and a cow for spider silk and all this kind of thing. We can genetically manufacture life ourselves now. And so what if this is part of what we're needed for? And if there was a particular fish or something within the hypothetically in the water that was of need and this water was killing this particular form of life or, or maybe they were, maybe there was an interest in, in um, you know, we're finding new species all the time as well. You know, we're finding different monkeys. We're finding, you know, uh, it's not like an evolution, but I mean, there are other animals that we are being spotted and tagged and recorded. So where are they coming from? Um, so if we had a, a dying star or a planet or what have you, and there's a, you know, this is our safe haven, um, and you want to hypothetically pr- preserve a species, and you just happen to come across Sheffield and you want to put the species in the water, and you're going, hey, <laughs> it's going to die if we put it in this body of water. You know, maybe there is, you know, what we saw had to do with the preservation of some form of life. And um, why I feel that way, again, I don't know, but I just do. Or maybe they were just warning us that we need to stop polluting the water the way that we are. Yeah, well, it's been like that for 50 years. So anyway, that's kind of where I stand with maybe what we were involved with. But again, um, that Sheffield area is... um, is still very uh, active. And I think Stockbridge is too, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mel? Up to this day, it's still still active? Sheffield is for sure. Oh, I think we lost yeah. Mel. I think we did. Maybe the right. battery died. But yeah, uh, let me hold while you get her back on the line. Yeah, if you just hold on just one minute, I'll go ahead and get her back on here. I, my apologies. Hey, you're fine. Tom, are you on? Did I lose Tom? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Hi, okay. Tom. I apologize. Thanks. We've got uh, five warnings up. We've got a hurricane warning and a tornado warning, flood warnings, and uh, what else is going on? It's like five warnings we've got going on up here. And so I lost you. If I lose you again, it's because of the weather. We've got bad weather going on up here. Okay. What is what's going on in Virginia? Did you guys get hit with this hurricane? Oh no, not. I'm in uh, I'm in West Virginia. We're surrounded by mountains. It's okay. just a cool. It's just a cool day today. It's about 78 degrees. It's just nice and pretty for us. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful here. Anyway, before we uh, jumped off, we were talking about how active um, the Berkshires still are to this day, primarily Sheffield and. I think Stockbridge. Um, maybe uh, when you start recording again, Mel, you want to talk about the the more recent stuff or what the activity in the area? Or well, you know, I, I've been thinking the more and more I talk to you, the more it comes back to me all the incidences that had taken place, and I really think that we need to start filing and making a whole journal of all the activity that has been taken taken place around the Berkshires and try and get, I know you've gotten a lot of people to speak out, but I know so many people and I really wish I could get them to talk because 
There's so much activity around here, and I really would like to try and get these people to speak out because it's really a shame that we cannot get them to talk because I think it is important that... Well, they are they are now a little bit. It's starting to... Uh, we're starting to see it more and more. I think you're right because they're starting to trust. There was no trust before. Hey, let me ask you this, Mel. So, um, right, exactly. Um, okay, so I'm watching the episode with my, my friends, and and uh, it gets to the part where the the officer in Great Barrington uh, opens up the binder, right? And he's like, well, we only see two reports in here, and and one's about beer cans or something. Now I'm thinking to myself, this was Labor Day, Labor Day, which is one of the reasons there were so many witnesses, because – People are outside having barbecues. You know, normally you might be inside watching reruns of Flipper or something, but they're outside, right? So all these people, or collectively people, were witnesses like Gina Paul and Marissa Paul. They were having a barbecue on Boardman Street when they saw it. And so there were a lot of witnesses, and they called WSBS radio. You know, there were reports. How could you have hundreds of witnesses, these people burning up the phones at WSBS radio, and then on Unsolved Mysteries, they open up a binder, and there's two reports, and one's about beer cans. I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be freaking kidding me. And then, and then it goes to the Because you know, it's the police department, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but they're famous for that. Right. Um, you lived in Great Barrington. You grew up in Great Barrington. They were all – the fathers had children that became police officers for generations. And I don't mean to be cruel, but it was their way or the highway for how many generations? And they did what right. they wanted to do. So they and took those pages out of the binder. No, they took, yeah, they opened up the binder always... and they flipped. They took the pages out. Right. Exactly. What? Everything doesn't... was covered up. It was who you knew. But doesn't that make you wonder why they would take those out? Like what were they trying to protect or were they told to do that? Uh, it, was it just because maybe their beliefs were set up where they they refused to to be open minded? What would drive the police department to hide that stuff? Because I believe they did too. Yeah, well, they did a uh, lot of things in Great Barrington. A lot of things in Great Barrington. Right. Well, you had the you had the racetrack. There was a lot of gambling, a lot of betting on the track. I don't think they wanted to, you know, in their minds back in the day. Um, deter people from wanting to come into town because, you know, Great Barrington was basically built, you know, a lot of it was, you know, the horse track was like a, like the, uh, outside the Searles Castle was the cornerstone of that community. And I don't think they wanted any, correct me if I'm, what do you think, Mel? I mean, they pretty much wanted to preserve that town, you know, for what they, what you they, and I uh, saw. have a long talk about Great Barrington <laughs> sometimes <laughs> on the radio. Yeah, yeah, I know. A lot of it's political and dangerous. Um, and then, of course, yeah. when then they then yeah, exactly. Then they went to um, Sheffield and they talked to Eddie Galata, and who was the son of the chief of police or the there was only a couple of officers in Sheffield, but he was uh, the officer Stand at the time. Blood. Yeah, yeah. And they had, well, they were flooded with calls, so they actually went out in the police patrol car 
um, as Eddie said, in Unsolved Mysteries to look for this thing. And so here's a town back in 1969 that might have had 3,000 people in it at best. And it drove them to actually get in the police car and go look for it. And you had WSBS asking people on the radio, where is this thing? Do you see it? Jan Green actually goes down to the radio station and knocks on the door to say, look, you know, it, you know, I'm a witness to this thing. And yet, like, like again, Great Baron has nothing. And yet Sheffield was flooded with reports. And so I don't know why, again, why, you, why Unsolved would show that. You know, um, no reports. You know, why wasn't there a follow-up question? Well, couldn't those pages have been taken out? You know, that kind of thing. Because, um, once again, these are the kind of things I think uh, bother people, bother witnesses. They're like, oh, well, they were trying to make it look like there wasn't any reports, when, in fact, it wasn't that at all. The reports were removed from the binder. I um, believe they were removed as well. But I, I believe they be. cover a lot of things up in Great Barrington. I know they cover a lot of things up in Great Barrington. Well, Tom, you also mentioned to me um, in an email, maybe, uh, it might have been a typo, but uh, I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> you, you said that uh, the series had also edited out uh, the testimony of a judge. Yeah, Judge Kevin Titus. Yeah, um, I mentioned earlier um, that the records or the um, let me okay. Um, so, so the citations that you'll see in, the, in the, some of the articles it says uh, that uh, you know uh, the citation from the governor was written in error. Um, I want to clear that up real quick because this ties into the judge. So, when I first got the citation. Um, and I did not request anything. I don't know how we got a citation. I had nothing to do with the monument. I had nothing to do with approaching the historical society. I had nothing to do with the citations being issued. Um, the the citation that was written and mailed to me in Tennessee, a thousand miles away or close to it, came in the mail, and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> I got a citation, right? And my belief is, and I don't know, but my belief is that the Historical Society inducted it and they wanted someone else to rubber stamp it so that they weren't the only ones and had a little bit of support from the state. And that only makes sense. My dad was, a, a again, a, an acting mayor, so he would have wanted the same thing, you know, somebody to cite, you know, pony up with you on your decision. And so I get the citation, and it doesn't have a date in it of when it happened. Now, any proclamation or any citation has to have a date of incident. Right, you can't have a, a day of remembrance if there's no date there. But my birth date was in it, so I think the governor's office or the governor himself, the lieutenant governor, um, Karen, probably saw the date and assumed that was the date of incident. So about two or three weeks later, I get a second one in the mail that's identical to it, but it has the date. And so that one was then sealed. The proper one had a, a seal on it. The other one didn't. And then it was um, notarized and sealed by Judge Kevin Titus of the 30th District Court, making that one the official citation. Yet we've got this, this biased jackass of a journalist in Great Barrington and Sheffield who wanted to, you know, who's got a, an issue with the topic, so he's like, oh, no, it was written in error. Well, there were two, not one. And the first one had an error, but the mm -hmm. governor did not write it in error. 
And so with that said, the judge also sealed the um, records or the two letters that we got from the historical society so that there couldn't be any question. So he's been working with us for about two years to get these articles uh, and letters and papers that my father got back from the United Nations back in October of 1992 um, to say these are legal documents, you know, not like a memorandum of law so much, but to officially uh, get these records sealed so that they can go into the Roswell UFO Museum and, you know, and, and, um, and research center. And so that's how he came in to this whole thing. So when we were first shooting this thing, and I actually had contacted or been in contact, I should say, with the segment producer, uh, Cindy, since 2015. We've been talking about doing a, a show on this for a very long time. And, of course, at every year there seems to be something else that comes up, something else that comes up, something else is sealed, somebody else comes out as a witness, you know. And it just kind of grew and grew and grew over the years. And how Melanie got in it and, and a few other people. And so Kevin um, was contacted to see if he would like to be in the program to talk about the documents and the sealing of the documents and how official this case really is. And um, they filmed them. They filmed them in the court setting. They filmed them, um, you know, with the robe, the whole bed, and, and reenacting the sealing of these forms and documents. And um, as it turns out, he's not in it at all. He's not even in the film. So they sent us like two minutes of, um, of him, you know, being filmed for the show. But, of course, you know, he never actually made the episode. And so Why? Little, well, again, um, you know, it, according to uh, the talks I've had, you know, afterwards with some of the people from Unsolved, that they really wanted to focus on the path of the UFO on September 1st, 1969. They just wanted to focus on the flight pattern. You know, what was it these people saw? Um, however, I was promised, and I say promised, I mean repeatedly. Even my mother, um, if she stepped in for my brother who didn't want to do it because he was traveling, um, you know, so that's the only reason my mother did it. And, and they assured her that the, uh, my father's credentials and the documents and the citations and so on would be in the film or the episode. And that was the only reason my mother agreed because she didn't want to, you know, put herself out there um, without – you know, a foundation for why she would, why she opted to do it because her late husband was instrumental in getting this mentioned at the United Nations. That's why my mother opted to do it. And of course, none of it was in there. Not the documents, not our late father's credentials, not Judge Titus, none of it. It was all, all gone. And, um, and so for that, we, we think, wow, this show could have been so much more powerful. But at the end of the day, um, it was a good episode. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that I'm certainly happy we did it. I'm filming right now with Travel Channel, um, and we're I think I got Melanie in a in a TV series that's being um, coming out of Toronto, Canada, by some of the ex producers of Inside Edition. But we'll see how it goes. Um, but uh, you know, it's we've been talking about this our whole lives. It's been 51 years. I've never written a book. I've never made a penny off this thing. Matter of fact, I built a park for everyone else, and we finally, at you know, 50 years later, have an opportunity to show that we made United States history collectively. Because as kids, you know, we were all children at the time. And we've all stuck together in one way or another. And over this 50-year period, 
collectively, we've made history together. And damn it, we can't even get a single document shown on us on a, any TV show. I don't get it. I really don't get it. That, that has to be frustrating. I mean, you have the validation, you know, at, and I think you deserve it. You know, I think that you deserve to be taken seriously and to be recognized um, properly. Yeah. You know what? Then I'm full, yeah. Yeah. circle, and we were brought together. That's something positive. Because I didn't know you when we were kids. And now, look, here we are later in life, and we've all been brought together, which I think is pretty cool. But I didn't know you then. Yeah. We had some, I guess we had a, a, a mutual friend in Delcy and a couple others. Yeah, but, we yeah, had we so much in common, and we didn't even know it. Right. Yeah. Well, you're older than me. <laughs> I know, but still, we worked at the same place, and I didn't know. Yeah, it. that was crazy. My first job was at Mahaley Theater. I was ripping tickets as like a guy. I must have been like twelve or thirteen, fourteen years old or something. I was ripping tickets at the door of the Mahaley Theater, and and she worked there as well. Um, but yeah, something else too. Um, when we saw this, um, you know, a lot of oh, that's a good point. A lot of positives have come from this because my. My entire life or career was shaped over this, you know. Um, you know, I my my mother said to me at one point, you know, what do you want for your birthday or Christmas or whatever it was? And I told her I wanted the camera. And um, when I got this little Polaroid camera where you took a picture, you had to wait three minutes to rip the thing back. And I wanted the camera because if I ever saw a UFO again, I wanted to take a picture of it. And that was what I was driven to do. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. I was like, I got to get a picture of this thing. And, um, and so that you know, got me involved in the cameras or the thing at, you know, the films at, you know, maybe theater. And then of course I was a photography club. And, you know, later on I, you know, became a fashion photographer in South beach and opened up a modeling agency. So if it wasn't for that freaking camera, who knows what I'd be doing today, you know, lawn care, vehicle maintenance. I have no idea, you know, but, um, it, um, getting that first camera for the reasons of catching a photo of this craft again, um, kind of steered my uh, my life, my career. So, And Melanie's right. I wouldn't have met her today. I wouldn't be on the phone with you today. So there's a lot of um, positives that come from it. And, um, and uh, in a way, it was a privilege. You know, it was not what we encountered was not scary to me. Like my mother said in the episode, it, you know, uh, right place at the right time. Um, it was everything around it, I think. It was the, uh, the, uh, the mocking, the, uh, you know, the, Again, you know, people can certainly kids can be can be hurtful to each other, and it, I think it hurts people more than they realize. You know, or you can say things to people that can really um, scar, you know, and leave a leave a scar for for a lifetime. That's right. Well, let me ask you then. Now that you guys are adults and the whole culture toward UFOs are different, would you would you want to have some kind of experience similar to that again? Or is that was that enough for you? That you That's you enough thought? for me. <laughs> I wouldn't. I still sleep. I sleep sitting up with three big dogs at night. And I have a hard time sleeping, although when I do sleep, I have very vivid dreams. Very vivid dreams. In fact, I had one about Tom the other night which I told Tom, I don't know whether it's something from his past or something that might happen, but um, 
my dreams are so clear and vivid when I do have them. But it's very difficult for me to sleep. I don't know if it is for you, Tom. Do you sleep easily? I didn't used to. Um, at one point, when I was a kid, after this happened, I used to sleep with a fork. And um, because my mother was single at the time, um, she would come in and check on us, you know, multiple times. And uh, she came in, um, I don't know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock one night, startled me, and I, I reached out with the fork and actually caught my mother in the forehead with a fork. I mean, that's how shook up I was over a lot of things back in the day. Um, and not because, again, I was hurt, but because I was confused, you know, because I was conflicted and because I was, what did I, again, I wasn't hurt. I was just shook up, you know. And um, and I kind of um, tapered off over a long period of time, I'd say maybe 10 or 15 years. I, you know, put it behind me, you know, suppressed it. Um you know, the visions, the things that, you know, there's a way to look at this and from the outside looking in kind of thing, you know, like where we saw the disc, we saw the crafts, we saw none of that was really frightening to us. Um, but, yeah, there were some moments that, um, you know, had me very um, uh, uncomfortable and, and um, shook up. And um, if I focus on those moments too much, yeah, of course, they, um, you know, it, it uh, kicks up some old feelings, but... Um, it wasn't until, um, you know, that my son was born that, you know, um, he started to have these um, odd nosebleeds and and we started to, you know, again, kind of um, see or have paranormal activity around our home and our family that it starts to, you know, you start to go, okay, where did that come from, you know, and, and um, of course I had my son tested and this kind of thing and he scored in the, in the um, superior range and uh and, uh, you know, so you wonder, is there a connection there? And, and so as life goes on, you start to look back and say, well, you know, what happened is, what happened to us as children? Um, was that something that is now in our um, makeup? Is that something now that my son is going to experience, you know? And um, you want to be level-headed and grounded about your approach and your, and your thinking about it. Um, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, my son has had um, some experiences too, um, or at least um, not like at the level we did. But, but, um, and so I think with that, um, who knows if we're going to have anything else further down the road? But I certainly think that our that um, individuals are are selected or picked or chosen uh, for a reason. I don't think it's as random as I once thought growing up. And that. That that's what I was going to ask next. You know, what do you think the reason was that they they chose the people that they selected? Is it because of something unique about you? Is there a characteristic, some character trait that you and Melanie and Warner shared? Um, was it? Well, I, well, I think that um, there's a couple. Now here, uh, back to uh, what I had mentioned earlier about all the um, military manufacturing plants and that kind of thing in the area. Right. Um, and O negative blood back in the 60s, which we have. Uh, Melanie's O also. I am O positive. O positive, and I'm O negative. But O negative blood was the only blood type tracked by the U.S. government in the 1960s. Did you know that? I, I didn't. It was tracked because it was the universal donor during the years of Vietnam. So any child born with O negative blood was tracked by the government. 
So that's something to think about too. Yes, it is. So, <clears throat> right. And I think it's the first or the original blood of man. You know, if you uh, some people think, oh, no negative blood came on afterwards. No, it didn't. It was the I think it was the original blood type because it's very difficult to maintain an Rh negative blood group throughout a family because the majority of those people, or like 85 or 90 percent of the people out there, are going to have uh, are Rh positive. All right. So over time, it it, it gets le- there's less and less and less, not more and more and more. And um, and there's some unique traits to O negative um, those with O negative blood or Rh negative blood. You know, uh, Time Magazine did a study quite some time ago that the only uh, link they found to heightened abilities and or to remote viewing was a link to the Rh negative blood groups. So again, I think if you were to look into, and I think a lot of your listeners probably know this, that if you look into Rh negative, um, you know, traits, you'll find that there is a quite a difference. It's almost in some people's eyes a different species altogether. Now, do I believe that? Yeah, kind of I do. I, I think that there are different species. And if we all came from the same place, we would all have the same blood types, but we don't. So um, we're a mixed race, you know, mixed race of humans. And some of us have properties or traits or what might be considered junk DNA that is more important than others or has a an importance Whereas maybe others don't, and I think that's probably um, what we're involved in. I think that um, you know, if I want a pit bull, right? I mentioned this earlier in the conversation today. You want a pit bull? You don't just randomly go grab a pit bull. You find a line that has good traits, healthy, um, good personality, uh, trainable, and you say, "I'm going to wait for that litter, and I'm going to get one of those." It's like a racehorse. You don't just go out and buy a horse because you think it's going to win a race. You follow that line. You look for traits. You look for properties. You look for you want what you want in a horse, and you get that one. You wait till it has a foal. You buy that one. And I think Melanie and I fall into that, um, you know, that uh, that categorization, you know, that category, <laughs> that category. Yeah. You know, and something. I, yeah. Yeah. And I think you're onto something there because I I have done a lot of research. Um, well, I call it research, but I've read a lot of books and I've watched a lot of shows, and <laughs> I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I've heard several times people talk about the relationship between blood type and experiences. And I think you're onto something with that. You know, I'm I'm personally I'm O positive, and I have had little stuff happen to me throughout my entire life. Nothing negative, but just it seems like I'm just more receptive to to the experiences or something. I don't know. But I, I'm mm-hmm. really on to something with the blood types. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're, I think we're more sensitive. And what something, else I've, something else I've heard, and I, I'd hate to even bring COVID into this, but uh, I, had, I had heard several times that they've done studies and type O blood is... Can't get it. Right. Virtually immune to it. Right. Well, that's so, good news. Yeah, so that's something, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is for me because I've been traveling all over the country, you know, hanging out in islands and Puerto Rico and St. Croix, and I, I, I've, I've been all over the free place. I haven't so much as caught a cold. So, um, and that's another thing. I think Melanie likes the islands too, right? Oh yeah, I'm an island girl for sure. I used to have a place down in Jamaica. For, 
over 20-some years, actually, down in uh, Westmoreland. Did I lose you again? No, no, I'm here. I'm just really jealous. I, didn't, <laughs> I had to cancel my business. <laughs> no, I'm here. My son just walked by, so I muted the phone for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, and my so, young uh, years, that was my home away from home. But I traveled all the other islands, too. A lot of the other islands. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, I like the water, too. So, uh, Bo, do you have any uh, particular questions or anything that you might want to ask Melanie or myself? Or Well, um, I've I've written a few things down, but as we have went through here, I've kind of had those questions answered by you guys. Um, I'd would, I would like to ask you, um, Melanie and Tom, both of you, um, I know Melanie has actually had eyes on these beings. Um, what do you think or who do you think that they are uh, and what, what do you think they want? Well, as a child, I actually saw these creatures and it, it was to me as a child, I was only four and it looked like little gray men. That's what I always describe them as, these little gray men that would come into my room. And then as I got older, and when I was 12 and I was taken, they looked the same to me. But then as I got even older, my last, the last time that I was telling Tom, my last incident, which was probably in the 90s, maybe late, late 90s, I don't remember seeing them. It was just a light around my house, and I wasn't able to wake anyone in the house up to show them. I tried to wake everyone in the house up. That was my last visit. So I didn't see them. I don't know who they were. I, I didn't get to look at them as an adult. So I don't know what they would look like being an adult from an adult's mind. Right. I wish I could have seen them as an adult because when you're a child, you see everything different. When my sister saw the same thing in the room, she described them as looking like a troll. So children see things different, but I clearly, because I saw them so many times, it was definitely a little gray man with big eyes. Wow. That's a, a, you know, I just want to let you know, I think that you're incredibly brave to just to open up like this for the first time on, on a show like this. And I, I really appreciate you talking about it. You have no idea how good it feels to finally be able to talk about this and not not be punished for it. Yeah. It was a long time to be able to talk about it. Well, I, I thank you again for doing it here <laughs> for sharing with me. You know, that, I, I appreciate it. I thank you for allowing me to. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts from and leave me a five-star rating and review. You can follow me on Facebook at The Bump Podcast. I'm on Instagram under the same name and Twitter 
Um, if you have a story that you'd like to share, please feel free to message me on any of those platforms and I'll be sure to get back to you. Or you can email me at thebumppodcast at gmail.com. That's thebumppodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, be sure to check out the merchandise that I have now. It's on my Facebook page. I have links to everything. It's on Teespring. You can find it as The Bump Podcast or The Bump Podcast Bigfoot on Teespring. I have lots of merch. I got a whole lot more coming out. Um, All of the artwork, I'm doing it myself. I'm designing everything myself. So it's it's a lot of work on my end. But I'm just hoping that I put something out there that you guys can enjoy. So thanks again for listening and don't stop believing.